Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at gramier.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Gramier Church of Christ. If you'd like to go ahead and turn to Matthew 18, that's going to be one of the passages we spend some time in tonight. It is good to see everyone here. I know there were several that were traveling over fall break, so it's good to have you back. Our 1-2-10 mentoring program uh, is, is going on, and just as a reminder, uh, we've got that class that's happening uh, over in the Yak right now for our, our young people, but also our Into the City ministry is going to resume uh, now that fall break is over, and so we want to continue to be prayerful about that. Jonathan mentioned that uh, at the end of this month, the last Sunday in October, we're going to have a open, an Open Door Sunday, which is a great opportunity. We've been thinking about open doors we want to walk through. This is a great opportunity to invite someone, and it's especially a great chance to invite uh, another family to join who might have children that might want to participate uh, in Trunk or Treat. And so the way things will work on Sunday is we'll have our worship together. We'll have a combined adult Bible class in here because the fellowship hall will be set up for our meal. Uh, Tommy Gore will teach our class in here and then we'll enjoy our meal together. And so we want to be thinking about bringing desserts uh, for that. The uh, main course will be provided for us. Then we'll have our uh, evening service, a devotional time of singing in the fellowship hall. And then after that, we're going to have some time for our children to prepare, uh, to get into the, you know, costume and get uh, things set to go, and for us to prepare, uh, lining up our, our uh, cars in the parking lot outside. And that's just a great opportunity to invite someone uh, to be with you. You might have a child or a grandchild that has a friend they want to invite. This is just a, a great way to connect with people. We typically have a lot of folks from the community join us uh, for our trunk retreat, and so we want to be there. Even if you don't have a child or grandchild that's going to be participating, uh, you can be a tremendous encouragement by sticking around uh, and getting to know some of the families that are there uh, and just spending time with the kids. It's always uh, a fun time, and it's a good opportunity uh, for us just to spend some time getting to know each other better in fellowship. Over the last few Sunday nights, I've been thinking about uh, the way things work, at least the way things work when I'm planning out my calendar. Uh, as I try to get about a year in advance, planning what topics we're going to cover at different points, and the ministers meet together and we kind of look over the calendar and we sort of see, okay, what do we want to do here and what do we want to do here? And one of the things I've noticed is it is really easy to assign yourself a topic that might not be the most favorite topic you have to preach on, but you can assign that to yourself a year in advance, right? You could say, oh, we're going to cover this in October. I don't have to worry about that till October. And then all of a sudden it gets here and you think, you know, even though this is an important principle, it's not always fun for us to discuss. One of the reasons that I feel that is because when we discuss, especially when we're thinking about the church, and we look at the passages we're going to be looking at tonight, it's a reminder of the challenges that we sometimes have. It's a reminder of problems 
that we face. It's, it's a reminder of the reality of sin. And yet it's important that we spend time thinking about how we're going to respond. And so as we dive in to the latest in our, our series, we've been going through church matters, thinking about uh, what do we need to know about the, the church? How do we need to understand uh, the way in which uh, we come together as a church and, and worship and function? We spent some time in organization, thinking about how the, the church is organized. We thought about that uh, last week, the fact that we're led uh, by shepherds and that we're under God's authority and we're fueled by service. But what happens when things don't always work in the ideal way? In other words, what happens when human beings act in very human ways? We are all human. And I was thinking about that this morning in our uh, class in the small auditorium. We were in Acts chapter 4, getting ready to go into Acts chapter 5. And you have the excitement and the euphoria of the church spreading and people are becoming Christians and all of a sudden great things are happening. And then as soon as that takes place and they're all together in the end of chapter 4, they have everything in common. Then you get to chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. And guess what? There are challenges and there are problems. And how are we going to respond to those challenges? And certain people aren't getting their needs met. And how is the early church going to respond to that? Well, the same thing's true as we turn through the pages of the New Testament. When we think about the organization of the church, there is a matter that we need to deal with. What happens when there needs to be some discipline in the church? What does church discipline look like? Uh, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to be part of a panel discussion. This was an open forum at Freed Hardeman. You're sitting up there, and it, we were on Monday of lectureship, which was good because a lot of people had already turned in their questions online, and so you could kind of get a glimpse of what some of the questions were that were going to be discussed. I don't know if you've ever, if you can think of times in your life where you've just ever been terrified, just really scared. Let me tell you, one of the most terrifying things to hear in an open forum where people can text in questions whenever they want to text in questions, one of the most terrifying things to hear is, you know, this question just came in. I mean, there's something, you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know where it's going to go. Here's a question that just came in, and your mind's spinning what's going to happen. And one of the questions that I can remember having the hardest time addressing had to do with church discipline. And the reason is, because there are so many variables and so many issues that there's wisdom in God's design for the church. There's wisdom in the design of a plurality of elders that are shepherds of a congregation that know their people, that know the situation, that know the history, that know what's happening, and they can make these calls. And so what I don't want to do tonight is go through and say, well, here's how you handle this and here's how you do this in a way that leaves out the other factors that need to be considered. There's wisdom in the way God has planned His church to function. But I would like for us to go over some principles just to understand uh, the way God gives us a blueprint for working together as a church. And when we think about discipline, this has been my experience, it may not be yours, typically when we think about church discipline, what comes to mind is the idea of a withdrawal of fellowship 
that that's often what we associate church discipline with, withdrawing fellowship. Now, that's a piece of what we're going to be looking at tonight. But discipline is going to involve our whole life, the process of submitting our will to God's. And so it would be a little bit like if you're thinking about discipline at home as a parent and that you only associate that term discipline with a specific punishment that's going to happen. Well, discipline encompasses everything. It encompasses training. There's a positive element of that, of wanting to make sure that children know what they need to know. There's a, there's a proactive positive element there. And it's not just about punishment. And so I think it's helpful for us when we put it in the context of what passages we have in Scripture to understand some of these basic principles. And the first is one we're introduced to in Matthew chapter 18. And that is when we think about church discipline, it, it fits the occasion. In other words, we don't get a, a one-size-fits-every-sin response. What we get is a practice Here's how we handle things. And when you go through this process, then at different points in the process, Christians are to respond differently. And so here's how we see that when Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 18. And he describes what happens when a brother sins against you. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to, to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That was a way of describing someone as, as an outcast. That's how you were supposed to treat them. But notice, that's not the first step. That's not the response to an initial conflict or an initial sin. That is the end of a process. A process that starts with going to that person. From what I can tell in Scripture, in the New Testament, much of what we read that has to do with the discipline of Christians in the church has to do with individuals. Not the moments where the church has to come together and act. It's individuals taking it upon themselves. That if there's someone who's sinning or struggling, my goal isn't to wait around until someone else notices my opportunity is to say, I'm going to go to this person. If that person is sinned against me, or if I, I feel that there's something that I need to share with that person, I go right to that person. I don't go to other people who know that person and talk to them about it. I don't go to other people who don't know that person and talk to them about it. I go directly to the individual. Now, that's easier said than done. How many conflicts could be avoided if we did that 100% of the time, if we went directly to the person that we had an issue with and we worked it out that way. And yet this is the pattern that Jesus gives. Now, as Jesus is saying this in Matthew 18, he's obviously uh, talking about this before the church has been established, but Christians were reading the gospel of Matthew. It would be hard to read this chapter and not think about the way things function in the church. When he uses that term, remember we discussed that the church, the, uh, the assembled, the group, that, that could refer to any group of people. We have to look at the context. 
And so when Jesus is talking about this, he's referring that to the collective, but it's hard for us not to look back and see just how this applies to the Lord's church when we've gathered together. Now, if, if it didn't work out the first time, you needed to have uh, one or more witnesses in order to establish things, especially according to Jewish law. So you needed to have people that went with you. But notice, it's still a proactive process where you're going to the person. If it doesn't work one-on-one, take a couple of people with you. You know, there are times it's easier to have a conversation if there's more than just two people involved. If you have mutual friends, if you have people that you have trust and respect in, there's something about their presence that can facilitate a constructive conversation. And so that can happen. And so if you do that, if he refuses to listen to them, then that's something that's brought to the church. Again, that's not the first step. The first step isn't for us to tell everyone we know at church what's happening. First step is to go to that person. But then we have the church. Then if he refuses to listen even to the church, then you have action to take. Again, it's important to think about that process. We're going to read some passages in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians that seem to indicate a time of withdrawal of fellowship. And it's just good to be reminded that that is not the initial reaction. That's the end of a process where people are lovingly going to someone who's struggling in sin. Paul told the church in Galatia that if anyone is caught in any trespass in Galatians 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Again, whose responsibility is that? All those who are spiritual. Not just the elders, it's not just the deacons, it's all who are spiritual. We're supposed to be helping each other. And when we do that, we do it in a spirit of gentleness because we know that every one of us could be tempted. We know when we're talking to someone who's struggling that we're not talking to someone uh, who is on a different level than we are. We're all human beings. We're all tempted. We're all going to need help and encouragement from time to time. We go into that with gentleness. And there are also aspects of discipline in the church that are taking place uh, without us even knowing it. Think about it this way. If we're all uh, putting Matthew 18 into practice, that means there are going to be times where someone has an issue with someone else. They go and they work it out. And I might go to the same worship service they do. I might uh, worship with them in the same congregation, and I might never know what's happening. And that's okay. I don't have to. That's the way God designed it. That was resolved. There are things in a church family that our shepherds deal with on a regular basis that, that we won't know about. That's the way God designed it. That they're going to take care of things. They're going to be helping people. They're going to be facilitating uh, conversations and giving guidance and giving help in all sorts of different ways. And we don't have to know about it to know that it's happening. And we can use that term, church discipline, and say, if discipline is what it means for us to be submitting to the will of God, then there are all kinds of aspects of discipline that happen on a regular basis. And so when we think about discipline, it's going to fit the occasion. I can remember a conversation I had years ago with someone who had been preaching for a, a small congregation for uh, about a year. And he said, well, 
He said, I just don't know if we're really going to get serious about church discipline or not. He had some ideas in his mind of what he wanted to happen as it came to church discipline. And the more we talked, I realized that he was dealing with the same thing that we often deal with. We have in our minds, here's how I think things ought to go. Here's how I think things ought to be. And we need to make some changes and we need to do this. I need to take a step back and say, wait a minute. Is what I'm thinking about, does it fit the occasion? Is this really what needs to happen? Because another principle we find out about church discipline in Scripture is that it is for the whole congregation. That the power of what is being described as discipline comes from God's design for the church. Uh, Again, there's such great wisdom in having a plurality of elders, having more than one leader. So it's not just one person who's deciding what happens here. It's a group of shepherds who are prayerfully guiding us. And when we think about uh, church discipline or even withdrawal of fellowship, it's not because any of us are perfect or are good enough on our own. It's because we're looking at God's plan for the church and we're wanting to do what's best. Now here's a challenge for us if we're wanting to bridge the context from the passages we're going to be reading uh, in 1 Corinthians in our life today. And that is we live in a very individual world. I think one of the reasons this is such a challenge for us is because our culture is very individual. We're not as communal as we once were even in this country or as you look at in the ancient world where not only was your family vitally important to you, but the area where your family lived, your immediate surroundings, people weren't moving around all the time. And so the people that you grew up with and the people that you knew, that was vital. That was part of where you fit in the world. And even in a place like Corinth, where you would have had a lot of people from a lot of different cultures, it was still important to find a community. And when you think about Christians in Corinth, they'd had to leave a lot of of their previous communities. To become a Christian, they're going to have to step away from idol worship, which was a big part of life in Corinth. They weren't going to be going to the temples that maybe they had grown up being accustomed to going to, or maybe even spending as much time with other people. So the church, the connection with the church was valuable. It was important. It was where they got their identity. And so when we think about the way in which Paul is dealing with a serious issue, uh, when he deals with an issue of immorality, and not just sinfulness, but sin that was being tolerated, in some cases, uh, you might even say uh, it was celebrated because they're being arrogant about it. Paul says something has to be done. So, in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you have assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now there's a lot that's happening in Corinth. And if you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, we, there are a lot of issues that Paul has to deal with. But this one evidently 
is one that was not just being overlooked or tolerated. They were arrogant enough not to think it was an issue. That this man would be with his father's wife, that was something not only that when you looked at uh, the law of Moses uh, would have been prohibited, it's also something that uh, Paul is saying, this, this isn't even accepted among the Gentiles. This is how serious this is. You're now celebrating something that should never be celebrated. In fact, it's so serious, you should be mourning this. This can happen. Uh, we, we can be tempted sometimes to tolerate things, even that we know maybe we shouldn't tolerate, but uh, because of maybe how we feel about someone who's involved, because of uh, how we how we feel. Maybe we don't like confrontation and we don't want to deal with that. Well, when there's something this serious that's being celebrated instead of mourned, he says, you have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead. So what was the result? He says in verse 5, and this is a tough part of the passage to read, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Being handed over to Satan seems to be a description of being disfellowshipped, of cutting off fellowship. Here's a way we see Paul write to Timothy, and use that same phrase in 1 Timothy 1, 19, when he's describing about people who've rejected and are suffering shipwreck in regard to their faith. Verse 20, he says, Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. But notice the purpose, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. It's very similar to the purpose that Paul is giving them here in 1 Corinthians 5, that what needs to happen in this specific case is this person needs to understand how serious this is. Paul's goal in chapter 5 is that he will be saved. As hard as this step is going to be, the goal is for that person's salvation. When he wrote to Timothy, he's saying, my goal is so they won't blaspheme anymore. It's not a, a matter of revenge or I'm upset that they're not listening to me. They're not doing what I say. So we're just going to cut ourselves off from them and we won't have anything to do with them. The goal is so that individual can be saved. A few verses later in verse 9, we get another glimpse into the fact that there are some letters, some correspondence Paul has with Corinth that we don't have in scripture that aren't inspired and recorded for us in Scripture, but there was correspondence taking place. And so in verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. Then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Again, Paul's sharing an important principle here. With Christians that were in the middle of a lot of other things happening in Corinth, and he says, you can't avoid other people who are going to live immoral lives. You'd have to leave the world to avoid sinful people. He said, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. So what I am saying is if you look at what's happening in the church and if someone's living that kind of life, that you don't give an approval to that. That's not something to approve of in the church. We're wanting to encourage each other to follow God. Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's our goal, right? To imitate Christ. It's not to 
do whatever is okay in all the area around us. And so Paul is describing the importance they need to place on making sure that they stand up for what God's Word teaches and for what the holiness of God demands. And especially in the context of 1 Corinthians, eating with people, or we might think of, of table fellowship, was a way of sort of approving what they were doing. And so Paul's giving, again, a very serious uh, statement here. Now, there are a couple of things that I think are good to remember. Number one is that there is correspondence that has already taken place between Paul and the Christians there. In other words, he's got more information about what's happening. He's addressing an issue that's taking place. So if we're thinking about the Matthew 18 process, this doesn't seem like we're in step one of that process. What it seems like is Paul is amazed that even the whole church is going along with this happening and they haven't done anything about it. And secondly, we find out as we think about how Paul instructs them to do this, that the goal is not just for making a statement and saying, this is what we stand for and we're not going to let you do that. The goal is for the person who's struggling in this sin. And so it's for the good of the congregation. It's not something that's, that is done where an individual is struggling with sin or temptation. You know, Paul, Paul isn't... And there were plenty of people who were struggling with sin in Corinth. Paul isn't targeting people who are trying to do their best and are making mistakes. That's all of us. We're all included in that group. Paul's not even focusing on someone who's caught up in a life of sin and is trying to do right but isn't really sure and is, is struggling with it and people are teaching and they're working with him. Paul is addressing someone who is determined to do what he wants to do. And Paul says that's serious and it needs to be dealt with. But again, the purpose, the goal, it's not just something that happens with the whole congregation. The goal is for correction. The goal is that ultimately... Uh, that this person will return. And the reason I keep emphasizing that is because if we're not careful, uh, this sort of topic can be uh, perceived in a, a different way. But if we look at the way in which parents, for example, discipline their children, the goal, even though the child is going to have to experience something that's unpleasant, they're going to have to experience the loss of, of a privilege. Maybe they don't get to do everything that they want to do. Maybe they don't get to have everything they want to have. But the goal for that specific time of being uncomfortable is for the maturity of the child. The same thing is true uh, when we see this in 1 Corinthians. And I, I think there have, have been times, uh, maybe there have been times or places where it's been sort of a, almost like a fad or a trend to just sort of say, well, I'm, we're going to start, we're just going to withdraw uh, fellowship from this person and this person and this person. Again, what we're looking at here is correction is the goal. It's not an effort to try to prove that I'm right. It's an effort to try to say, hey, I'm a forgiven sinner who's doing his best to live for God, and I want to help you do your best. And there are times when as a church family, something like this might be required. In fact, it's interesting that when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. But then notice what he says. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother 
In other words, he's saying, if someone doesn't want to take God's word seriously, that's important. That's serious business. They need to be admonished. But they haven't become your enemy. They're still your brother. You, you have to maybe treat them in a way to get their attention and to say this is important, but you have not cut them off from being a Christian anymore. You're admonishing them as a brother in Christ. I think that's an important distinction. And then when we flip over to 2 Corinthians, we get insight into the other aspects of this. Now, as I mentioned, there are letters we have, likely uh, before 1 Corinthians, Paul was corresponding. We see that because they'd written him about some specific things. And it also seems that in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, there was correspondence between Paul and the church there. But in 2 Corinthians, he starts to discuss in chapter 2 someone who has had punishment inflicted by the majority. We don't know if it's necessarily the same individual that we read about in 1 Corinthians, but it does give us some insight into what the goal of this was. And so in verse 5, we'll pick up there, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Again, we're reminded that the goal is correction. And so Paul wants to make sure he's not ashamed of sorrow. He talks about that in that chapter, that there's godly sorrow that's important. There need to be times in my life where I experience that godly sorrow and guilt. It's not always inappropriate. But Paul does say there are times when that could be so excessive. And so this, this punishment, he's saying, is sufficient. It's done its job. Whatever the details might be, again, we don't know all the details, but we can know the goal of what happened. And that was though this person would come back to Christ and could be reaffirmed and forgiven. There are positive results the godly sorrow. And if the goal is correction, that means if someone has gone through a process like this one or similar to it, and they come back, then our responsibility when a brother or sister repents is to not just begrudgingly allow them back into the good graces of God's people, but to welcome them the way God welcomes us back when we come to Him. The individual who was involved here in sinning wasn't sinning against Paul and wasn't sinning against the Christians. He was sinning against God. That's who needed to forgive him. But then once that forgiveness takes place, then it's our responsibility to model our forgiveness after God. It's important that we're just as welcoming and just as loving as Scripture describes God being when we come back to Him. It matters what's said in the church. It matters what's taught. It matters what example is set. And so I think we see that. But we also see that the people involved matter. Now, if we're thinking about the culture we live in today, I think one of the key differences that we're, we see in contrast with what's happening in Corinth and what's happening now is we're in such an individualized culture. Typically what happens if we're thinking back to this Matthew 18 process is that you might have someone come to you with an issue and maybe that doesn't go well maybe they take a few people with them and usually before it gets to 
a 1 Corinthians 5 kind of place. We're so mobile and there are so many places that we can go that typically individuals will disfellowship themselves, that they'll choose to go somewhere else. They'll choose to worship somewhere else. I think that probably happens a lot. I also think it's important for us to realize that when Paul's dealing with this issue, he's writing by inspiration to the church at Corinth. But he's not giving us the way you deal with everything. He's giving us how you deal with a specific sin that's being tolerated in a specific circumstance. So before I'm too quick, I need to think back to Jesus' plan for dealing with conflict in Matthew 18. I need to realize I need to step back and and talk to people directly. And I think we'd be surprised how many issues can be resolved if we do that. Again, we've thought about the church, the way the church is organized, how the church works together. Even in a topic like this one, which isn't always a lot of fun to talk about because it's a reminder that we sin and sometimes that sin has a reality that has to be dealt with and has to be addressed and that's not always pleasant. But it is part of God's plan. And it's a part of the wisdom of God's plan for the church. There's not just one person making a decision based on what that person thinks. We're following God's word. And there are shepherds that are lovingly leading us and prayerfully leading us. And there are deacons that are serving and trying to encourage. And all of us as members are seeking to make sure that there's nothing that's going on. There's no uh, issue of sin between us and someone else that we're not addressing. We're proactively trying to seek out uh, ways that we can reconcile and ways that we can make things right. And when there are conflicts, and there inevitably will be, we're human beings, we go to God's Word as the ultimate standard. And our goal is for everyone not to become enemies of one another, but to be brothers and sisters. And there are times we might have to have hard conversations and there are times we might have to talk about difficult things. That's part of what being a family is all about and we're a church family. But I'm comforted to know that God has not only given us a way in which we can come to Him and be forgiven, but He's placed us in His church and in His family. And He's got a plan for how that church is going to function. So as we think about the nature of discipline, fitting the occasion, being for the whole congregation, and the ultimate goal being correction. The goal is that we would all serve God to the best of our ability. So one of the challenging things about setting out a calendar in advance is you have to schedule topics that might not be your favorite. And another challenging thing can be when we've had a topic as serious as this one and as important as this one, it doesn't always naturally lead into an invitation. But I think in a way, being reminded of the care and concern that God has for all of us, the care and concern He has for His church family, is a reminder of God's love for us and His desire that all of us would choose to obey Him. Though it may be tonight that you're ready to become part of God's family. You won't be joining a group of perfect people, but you'll be joining a group of forgiven servants of a perfect God, all doing our best and striving to serve Him. It may be that there's another issue that you have in going on in your life that we can encourage you with, that we can pray for you and help you with. 
God did not save us to walk alone, but he's placed us in his family with brothers and sisters. We'd love to encourage you. If there's any way we can help, please let us know as we stand and as we all sing together.